Wow. Would you thank our worship team? That's not just what they do, it's who they are. And that's why that happens. Well, good morning. Great to see you guys here and online. Welcome. Happy Valentine's Day. I got two people who just responded to me. Happy Valentine's Day. I know it was two days ago, but you know, it's all weekend. I saw some kids this uh, past week, I don't know, first graders, uh, somewhere in there with little, little Valentines, and they were all, I think they were giving them to one another, their teacher, whatever. Um, and I read this thing about a kindergarten teacher. How many of you remember your first, your, your kindergarten teacher's first, their, their name? How, do you remember, how many remember your kindergarten teacher's name? All right, kindergarten teachers, look around, no pressure. Those kids are gonna remember you for the rest of their lives. I remember because it was such a positive experience. Uh, my schooling went downhill from there. Uh, kindergarten was the highlight. But I was reading about this woman, these, all these kids are bringing Valentine's gifts. She was one of their favorite teachers, really popular in the school. So all the kids had made Valentine's, they had special gifts that they had wrapped up, and they all got in line to give them to her one at a time and just receive her thanks and her gratitude and those, her kind words. This first little girl she brought up is a, a box about this long and so wide. And she knew uh, the little girl's mom owned a flower shop. And so she's opening it up and she says, oh, Brie, I, I think I know what this is. This might be some beautiful flowers. She opens it up and sure enough, and she smells a flower and thanks her. And, then this uh, little girl comes up and she's got a little square box, a little thicker, smaller all the way around, but she could tell, all right, I, and she knew that little girl's parents owned a candy store. And so she said, oh, Sally, I, I think I know what this is. This is some wonderful candy. She's opening it up and puts a little chocolate in her mouth and thanks her. And she had a couple of cards kids gave her. And then this little boy came up. He had a rectangular box, smaller than the flower boxes, but a little bit bigger than a shoe box. And he handed it to her, it was all wrapped up. And when she grabbed it, she felt that it was wet all on the bottom. And, but she knew that little boy's dad owned a wine shop. And so she's thinking, oh, he's dropped the bat box, so she's going to make him feel better. And she's, she kind of w- wipes some of that off on the bottom just so she can demonstrate to him she, she's still going to appreciate it. And, right, and she's putting it up to her lips, right? She puts it up to her lips. She says, I bet this is some wonderful wine from your dad. And she, she licks her lips. And he says, no, ma'am, it's a puppy. <laughs> some of you are... It's going to hit you in just a moment or two <laughs> what happened. Our tendency is renowned for making false assumptions and helping us to arrive at wrong conclusions. We do it all the time. In little things, also in big things, there's no place more tragic where our false assumptions cost us dearly than when it comes to the gospel and understanding what the gospel is. Our vision here at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's based on what Jesus said his mission was. To be fully alive is a a life of the gospel. The life that you see in the New Testament is not about whether our heart's beating or lungs are breathing only, but whether we're alive, throbbing, thriving, flourishing to the purposes of God according to the symphony of God in his enablement, born again in a sense. Jesus in John 10, 10 says, the thief wants to steal and kill and destroy. That's the enemy, Satan. He says, but let me tell you why I've come. I didn't come to start a religion. A lot of people think that's what Jesus is all about. That's their wrong conclusion. He says, no, why I've come is that you may have, is that you may have life have it to the full. That's not a happy clappy, everything's rosy. It's a restorative word. It's a shalom word. To be fully alive is to be restored the original purpose, cadence, path that God's made for you and me as human beings, changing the way, not just that we do church, changing the way that we do relationships and vocation and play and tears at funerals and at parties. So we're unpacking this thing of fully alive. We're going through John's gospel. The last surviving disciple, all of his friends were martyred. As an old man, he was persecuted, but he lived to be an old man. And that's more than he could say for any of his friends. And he wrote his gospel. 
to describe this life of the gospel. We're calling this series Awaken because that's the invitation of the gospel. Not to get religious, but to awaken as a human being into who God made you to be for his glory. We're going through passage by passage. You've got your Bible, turn to John chapter eight. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't own one at all, you can pick one up at the welcome desk as our gift to you afterwards, but you also have a copy inside your worship guide. So where we are in this journey is Jesus in this cantankerous, with this cantankerous group of people in a pretty serious dialogue. They're religious leaders. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the quote big time sinners that, that Jesus went after. He loved them. It was the pride of the religious leaders. And you know, religious people can be mean. Some meanest people ever, and Jesus is calling them out. They've been in this dialogue going back and forth, and now their, their theological arguments have failed. Now it's about to get personal. Verse 48, John 8, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's not referring to just physical death, that's referring to this death that's a consequence of our sin, the separation from God. At this they exclaim, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. Zinger. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why they pick up stones to stone him at that moment? He was proclaiming something powerful and in their face. He was challenging all of their wrong conclusions and their erroneous assumptions. So what we're gonna do is unpack this text in a Monday morning way, but before we do that, I wanna introduce a new friend to you, somebody that makes his living capitalizing on people's wrong assumptions. His vocation is a magician. His name is Justin Flom. We've been talking about him for a while. Justin lives in Las Vegas. He's a passionate follower of Jesus and an amazing craftsman at his trade and what he does. It's a result of years of rehearsing and we're gonna to talk to him a little bit about what's behind him capitalizing on these wrong assumptions people make and he makes the joke of, about being basically a deceiver from the standpoint of luring people along. And God has blessed not his deception, but his platform. And he uses it for the glory of God, for his kingdom. And it's spread, he's been on Ellen and James Corden, Seth Meyers. After the Super Bowl, he was on that special show, toured with uh, Florida Georgia Line. I, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to see how God has, has given him favor in this. He's gonna be doing a a performance tonight. He and I were talking on the phone this past week. I was getting to know him a little bit and said, hey, would you be willing to just spend some time with us in the services, let people get to know you some? He said, I'd love to do that. So I'm gonna have him come up, but first I want you to just, here's a little video of some clips of different things about Justin that will orient you a little bit to who he is. Take a look. Now my next guest is a magician and YouTube sensation. What's happening? Hey folks, would you welcome Justin Flom? Justin, come on up. Hey, 
Good to see you. What's up? Oh, the, uh, uh, it's a little, I'm still getting over the trauma of seeing, that was your daughter that, that you uh, girl, divided yes. in half with the Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, that when we put that video online, it was seen by over 200 million people on Facebook and YouTube, which means I got about a million calls from Child Protective Services. It's, <laughs> it's not what you think. They just wanted to know the secret to the trick. So I told them she has a half-sister. But I'm, well, That's the silliest thing I'll say all morning, I promise. <laughs> but, but, I mean, video, online video, has been something that God has used. I mean, over two billion views. Yeah, it's been, it's two, been a little that's bit. That's billion with a B. Two billion views have been... Yeah, it's, uh, it's been pretty amazing the way God has passed around the videos and, and stuff like that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and it's led to some really cool opportunities. I mean, it even allows me to be here this morning. As a magician. That's right. Which is weird, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, if this, a magician in church, this is weird, right? Okay, if you guys don't think it's weird, y'all are weird, because I'm basically a professional liar. So the question is, like, what am I doing here and not like, in Washington or something? Being <laughs> <laughs> real, guys. Uh, the thing is, we were talking backstage, and we said, a pastor had the idea, he goes, you know what you should do when you come out? You should expose one of your magic secrets, you know, teach everybody the trick to the trick. And I said, no. But he convinced me, do you guys want to learn a magic trick? I'll, I'll show him. This is kind of the perfect way to, to show really exactly what uh, magic is. So I'll teach you one of these old classics of magic. This is one of these old school tricks that you do back in the day. You'd borrow a men's pocket handkerchief or bandana or something like this. Now, I'll show you the trick first, and then I'll teach you exactly how it's done. Uh, so this is the color-changing handkerchief, okay? As it passes through the fist, it changes from red into white. The more you push in the top and the more you pull out the bottom, the more it looks like it changes until it's changed. Check it out all the way. Cool trick, right? I'll show you how it's done. There is uh, two band... Okay, you guys look bummed. You guys look bummed. <laughs> I should have explained before I started. Magic's fake. Some of you guys are just learning this. Okay, that's, I'll take you through it. Listen, people ask me all the time. They're like, yeah, but what about, what about that, um, that dark looking guy on TV? Is his magic demonic? He wants you to think so, but he's Catholic. Now the thing is, before I walk on stage, <laughs> I have one of these bandanas hidden in my fist, okay? Uh, that's, the, that's the secret. The audience doesn't know about this, and I just gotta keep that hidden in there. And when I walk on stage, I just keep my fist closed, okay? Very important, don't open your fist. It will ruin the magic, you gotta keep it closed. You push one bandana in, you pull the other one out. It looks like they've changed colors. Ma'am, settle down, I know, I'm really good. Now. Don't ever do this, because the audience will see that you have more than one bandana. Huge bummer, you don't want them to see that. If you do that, you actually have to start the whole trick over and actually change the color of the bandana. It's when you do that, that neighbors start nudging you, going, this guy's really good, we should see the show tonight. And they go wild with applause. Cool trick. So I hope that it kind of explains everything. Oh, Any yeah, questions? That, that straightened it all out for me. I, I, <laughs> so the, that's part of the thing is that the, it's the sleight of hand. It's, you, people it's talk any, about... It's a trick any five-year-old could do with 20 years of practice. There you go. <laughs> so this whole deal of... It's ironic. We did not plan this. It, it happened because mapped out this series. It just so happened that this weekend is this text in which the Jews pull that low blow and say, you're demon possessed. They accuse that. Not many of us know what that's like to be accused of that. I do, yeah. yeah. I, I've, been, I've been called, and it's, and it's always from uh, people who have a good heart. They, they're Christians, and they, they accuse me of being a demon or being demon-possessed. So I did a little video called I'm Not a Demon. Uh, <laughs> now, after the, after the service, you can look it up. It's very fun. You'll see the, the, the comments from these Christians are not very Christ-like. Uh, but I unpack in this video, you know, first of all, everything I do is fake. It's all just trickery. Um, it's kind of an honest deception because we're all in on it. You, I don't claim to have supernatural power and you don't think I do. Uh, and also, I, talk, I unpack the original Greek and Hebrew sure. words that talk about, uh, you know, what, what was magic 
back in the day. The original Greek and Hebrew was pharmakos and magos, and it's where we get our words pharmacy and, and magician, magic. Uh, but the thing is... And magos is the magi that came to visit Jesus. That's right. Yeah. yeah they, the, you can see those words used to describe the magi who visited Christ at, at Christmas, at, at Christ's birth. And the Bible's not condemning those magi, of course, because that word covered a multitude of things. Doctors, lawyers, astrologers, astronomers, uh, scientists. And that was, what, that was really what they were. They were men of science and and the Bible's condemning, you know, a, a poor use of science to claim power of God. And you know, I, I didn't say this before, but uh, the magicians of the biblical times that are written about in the Bible, they saw Christ's miracles as real. And one of them even became a follower of Christ because of it. So being a magician doesn't take me away from Christ. It leads me right back to it because the deceivers of the time saw Christ's uh, miracles as what they truly were, real acts of God. Oh, cool yeah. thing, right? It, totally. Yeah. So the, uh, you grew up in a family of magicians. You've been traveling uh, all your life, really, yeah. and using uh, magic as a platform from the gospel. Actually, we're, one of the places where we first came across Justin was James Lee from uh, our head of security was in Egypt and, and saw I, one I of your shows and using that as a platform. We would, do, we would travel with our church, uh, which I grew up in Minnesota, and, and we'd, we would do these uh, missions trips where we'd use magic uh, to catch people's eyes so they'd listen with their ears so God could touch their heart. The same way that you use props, I'm told. The, the staff told me that you use a lot of props. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And, but it's the same thing. Jesus used props and parables. I get to use that, and it's a great object lesson. But not just internationally. This is an amazing thing. God uses it in, in incredible ways. So I told a story when, back when I was a nobody. Nobody was watching my magic. I did a little YouTube video uh, about a soldier who uses a deck of cards as a Bible. Some of you might have even seen this because it was passed around to millions of people, not just like us here, but this trek where I'm talking about the gospel and my faith ended up on the desk of Ellen DeGeneres. And that's the video that put me on her show. That's not what you'd expect at all. And really, if, if I got, excuse the pun, I got no illusions about this. If I don't have that boldness to share my faith in a video like that, and it doesn't end up on Ellen's desk, I don't get to do any of the things I've done in my career, because that appearance was kind of the catalyst that started everything. So I always encourage believers, man, whatever God's gifted you to do, you got to be bold in your faith, because whatever blessings are waiting for you, oh yeah. my gosh, they are just the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. Can I show you kind of Please, one yeah, of those lessons? Show us. Listen, I'll show you, the, this is a fun thing. So when I would, I've been to 26 different countries, all kind of using magic to, to share a message sort of thing. Now when you go, whether it's Nairobi, Kenya, or Egypt, where James saw me, or Peru, you can't really bring out a deck of cards or a, a fancy Las Vegas magic prop. They don't know what that stuff is. So we'd go to the local hardware store, for real, We'd pick up a piece of rope or something like that, and I'd be the bait. They'd send me out into the street uh, to try to gather a crowd, uh, and I would explain, you know, just a little bit of a magic trick. Uh, talking about a rope, because we're all familiar with rope at all. All rope has two ends and one middle. It's kind of an obvious thing to... Oh, sorry, hang on. Strange, that's one, two, three. Okay, so this rope has three ends and one middle. Hmm. You can actually end up with a rope with one, two, three, four ends, one middle, and y'all act like you see this stuff all the time. No, I'll earn it, I'll earn it. I'll take two of the ends, this is a weird thing. Mathematically it works. If you take two of the ends, move them down to the other side, two ends over here, two ends over here, that equals two ropes. You see, it's one of those things, it's kind of like an optical illusion. People ask me, is magic an optical illusion? It's not, it just looks like one. And sleep, good. No, uh, look, two loops of rope. It's when you rub them together, this looks cool. They like that one, they like that one. I'll, I'll do it just because you seem to like that one. It'll happen fast, but I'll do it one more time. Just so at this point, I've got people's attention, okay? A crowd is gathered on the street, wherever I am, uh, and then we start to talk about where we're from. We're from the United States. I tell them about Minnesota, where I'm from, where it's very cold in the wintertime. Sometimes so cold, you can actually freeze your ends off. 
weird. You end up with some rope with no ends over here, some ends without a rope over here. Now this is that optical illusion I was talking about earlier. Look at this. If you set the ends on the rope like so, look, it almost looks like it's a part of the rope. You see, it's, it's that optical illusion. Watch. Cool. So now here's the thing. Now that I've got their attention from just a little bit of magic trick, this is where the message comes in. And this message is one that you guys know, but maybe it'll make you think about it a little differently. You see, in the beginning of life, life was perfect. There was no sin in the world. Uh, we were one with God, the Bible says. Now this end of the rope is going to represent us, you and me, human race. This end of the rope represents God and nothing separating us. As you can see, uh, the Bible says we were able to walk in the garden with him. Now, Satan hated that, so he tempted both Adam and Eve to do the one thing God said not to do. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Both Adam and Eve ate from that tree, separating us from God. Now, here's the thing. There was now this sin, this void in between us, this gap right there. We were no longer one with him. But we know that that's not where the story ends. God, in his infinite love and mercy... He sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Now, because Jesus was the only perfect man to ever walk the earth, he made the perfect sacrifice when he died on that cross for our sins. That perfect sacrifice brought us back together with God, but look, there's still this sin that separates us from him. The Bible says in order to get into heaven, you have to be perfect, and you and I are not. <laughs> I didn't mean for that, but that was, I, I, I like that. I'm going to keep that. That was good. So here's the thing. Uh, I had a friend recently. Asked, well, the thing is the gift of salvation, Christ's gift of salvation is like any gift. It's not yours until you receive it. If I had a gift for you right here and I'd say, this gift is for you, it's not yours until you take it and receive it. And Christ's gift is the same. I had a buddy ask me recently. He said, you know, you Christians, you got that weird loophole where you can live a terrible life, but if you pray and ask Jesus to forgive your sins, he will, and you get to go to heaven. Man, I mean, he's not wrong, but what he's calling a loophole, I call God's infinite grace. So, please, don't leave your eternity dangling on the end of a rope. You see, life without Christ, that is a hopeless end, but with him, it's an endless hope. And I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> Tonight, six o'clock, uh, you're thinking right now maybe of somebody that you could invite that wouldn't normally want to come to a, to a church. Uh, that's what this is about. And so, Justin, thanks. Thanks for the investment that you have made in the gospel with your craft. Absolutely. So those assumptions that you were wrestling with, that led to conclusions that were the wrong ones when you just, just with some rope and some handkerchiefs. Now go back to this text and let's unpack it a little bit. They came, these Jews, these religious leaders had some assumptions about Jesus that were leading to wrong conclusions, similar to people's assumptions today about who Jesus is, what he's up to. I mean, the, we assume that Jesus is somebody less than he is, and that's what those Jews were then. People still do it today. And we also assume that what he offers us is less than what he actually wants to give us. So go back to the text and pay attention to something. There's, in English, the phrase, at least in the New International Version, is, is very truly. 25 times in John's Gospel, that phrase appears. It's an Aramaic phrase that Jesus used. Basically, it's a double amen. Amen, amen. People ask why I sometimes say amen and amen. That's why. When Jesus says that, he's saying, listen up. Everything he says is important. He says, amen, amen. Very truly, pay particular attention. In this text are two of those 25 occurrences in John's gospel. And look at what he says about who he is and what he does. Look at verse 58. He says, very truly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, not I was. He's not saying, I have just aged well. He said before he was using a very specific tense. Remember when Moses was asking God for his name, who shall I tell them sent me? And the answer was, tell them I am. It's conveying the self-existence of God, the timelessness of God. Jesus unequivocally, the reason they picked up stones to stone him is he was telling them, I'm God, I am. Jesus is far more, they were assuming he's just kind of a religious charlatan. People today assume Jesus is a religious leader. He's not that, he is God. And not only do we assume that he's less than who he really is, we assume that he offers less than he wants to give us. Go back to the text, look at the second, amen, amen. In verse 51, he says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word will never see death. This is the hinge point of his discussion with them. Again, he's not referring to heart beating death in life only. He's referring to the life of the gospel, the life that we are born without because of our sin. We're capable of great laughter and ingenuity and creativity and love and relationships, but it's muted, it's cloaked under this curse of death. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. I've come that you might not need to, that you need not taste death. John chapter five, verse 24 is a third, one of his amen, amen, very truly I tell you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Eternal life is not a synonym for heaven. We will experience eternal life in an undiluted way in heaven, but eternal life begins the moment that I trust Jesus. He says, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over at that moment from this realm of death to this realm of life. Very truly, here's a fourth of those 25, amen, amen. I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And those of you who've trusted Christ, you're sitting here watching online, you and I are fulfillment of that statement that that time has now come. And he says, I'm here, I'm enough. Do not assume that what I wanna give you Do not assume that what I wanna give you is less than what I really am offering. I'm not coming to give you something to do on a Sunday morning or to change the box you check on your senses to describe yourself as Christian. I've come to bring you back from the dead. And those of you, when we're singing and proclaiming that we're the church of the firstborn, that's a fulfillment of what Jesus is saying there. He's proclaiming. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes who has sent me has eternal life. He's right there. So, this connection point, which I, I love, you think I'm about to attempt a trick. Are you nuts? I'm not about to attempt anything. So, um, okay, there we go. Um, what was that? Is that good? Did I do that right? Okay. This connection point, God in humanity, you. The gospel connects us. What's the relevance of that on a Monday morning? Well, every Monday morning, every human being goes through our day with three questions, living out the answer to three questions. We might not arrive at the answer overtly, intentionally. It might come by way of default or passive, passively. But the questions, number one, Who's my ultimate audience today? Number two, what's my ultimate truth? Number three, where's my ultimate significance going to come from? Those three questions dictate what I do in my relationships, my vocation, my recreation, how I grapple with difficulty. And so when Jesus is saying, stop your wrong assumptions, halt your false conclusions about who I am and what I came to do, I've come to, to restore you to the life of the Father. You're a dead man or woman walking, still in His image, but separated from the life of God. So, what's it look like to be connected? To do my relationships, to do my parties, my athletics, my vocation, do my doctor's appointments? What's it like to be connected? Let's go back and unpack each of those three questions in light of this text. Number one, result of being connected to God is every day will find me with a vision 
for the smile of God. Every day that I live, if I'm connected to the Father, I'm living my day with a vision for the smile of God that's addressing who's my ultimate audience. Every one of us lives for an audience. Could be ourselves, could be our family, could be our boss, could be our peer group. But when I'm walking with Jesus, above all, I'm wanting his smile. When I was in in high school, my dad and I was an amazing mentor to me in a lot of ways. I was doing some stuff that uh, was not making him smile, put it that way. I mean, my friends were really liking, but he's, so he very gently, we, we started talking through it and I said, dad, I get it. And I'm so sorry. And, uh, uh, and he said, so you're going you're gonna to change what you're doing. He said, I said, yes, sir. And, and then he smiled. He said, so you're telling me that my smile is more important than the smile of your friends? I said, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. We live for a smile. We all live for somebody's smile. When I'm connected to the Father, I live with a vision of His smile that will be above all else. Go back to the text. What Jesus says in verse 49, He says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father. What I'm about is honoring my Father. So in our relationships, in our work, in everything we're doing, we're about honoring our Father. We're about His smile, His approval. I know it's exciting to think about what we have right now is about nine, ten more months of political campaigns. Aren't you excited about that? And the advertisements and uh, one phrase you're going to hear, my guess is, a couple of times at least, is approval ratings. Politicians live by them. We think those are bad. Actually, they're not that bad. Maybe politics excuse it a little bit, but you live with an approval rating meter. So do I. Where are we going for approval? And the deal is, is evaluating who our approval is coming from. And if I'm connected to God through Jesus, restored to his life, I'm living with a vision of his approval above all else. I'm living before an audience of one. Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, verse 14, Paul says, let me tell you what our motivation is for Christ's love compels us. Not our religiosity, not guilt. Christ's love compels us because we're all convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Last week, we talked about the fact we're no longer orphans, that he loves us with an unconditional love. I do not have to perform to get God to like me. It's a free gift. So I come, I'm totally loved, unconditionally, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the acceptance of the Father. So what motivates me to try to get God to like me? No, I can never bridge that gap with my behavior. My behavior is, comes from this connection he's already given me in grace. Look at it, just a couple of verses earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we make it our goal to please him. You and I are in his favor if we're followers of Jesus. If we've received Christ, he gives us the same favor as him. Christ's righteousness is ours. So what's the goal of our behavior is to please him. To live out of the smile of God, to live to honor him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that word judgment in Greek, it's bema. It's the bema seat was the seat that Olympians, in ancient Greece, it's the seat that the Olympians would appear before to get their wreath and their reward. This is not a, this is a passage for believers. It's not referring to our judgment of sin. My sin has been taken care of on the cross, but we will go through a judgment. And the judgment is what we've done with our lives, how we have lived, their judgments into Christ so that each of us may receive what's due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And this is the same text that talks about our, basically our life's works can be categorized as wood, hay, and straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones when it passes through the scrutiny of God's judgment, all the trivial, all the superficial, the stuff that we've done without submitting to him, done on our own for our own approval of the people around us, those things are going to disappear. We'll still be saved but we'll end up with far less at that great reward. And so it's a matter of saying, I want to live in view of the smile of God that he's lavished on me right now and the smile of God that he's, he's leading me with. 
So I've, got, I've been loved, he smiles on me, I'm living to please him. And there, one of the things I love about Justin's story is he's living for the smile of God. And he will do it boldly at times. My, my oldest son, Andrew, when he was at the uh, first year at the, at the Air Force Academy, United States Air Force Academy, first year, you wear your uniform whenever you're on campus or off campus, you've got your uniform on. And so he'd gone through basic training, was on the football team, it was, it was Labor Day weekend, and the academy, uh, the Air Force Academy didn't have a football game that weekend. And so Andrew went with some buddies up to Invesco Field where the Broncos play in Denver, where Colorado State University and University, uh, University of Colorado were playing. And he went, took, he headed out into the concourse, go over to get a hot dog or something, and he's waiting in line. And he experienced something he had never even thought he would experience. He just never had occurred to him. He was ridiculed for his uniform. Some people came up to him and went up, down, and down, up one side and down the other, despising our military. Andrew's about six foot three, 240 pounds. And he just smiled at him. One of his friends was telling me this. So Andrew and I talked about it. I said, buddy, I am so sorry. It's a good thing I wasn't there. The pastor would have gone to prison. Uh, <laughs> he said, dad, you know, you know I got thick skin. I got a tender heart, but I got thick skin. And man, that's the way to go. Most of us are the other way around. We've got tender skin and thick hearts before God. What Justin is modeling is having a tender heart before God, but thick skin in, in the midst of, of ridicule, giving an answer. So when I'm connected to the life of God through Jesus, I'm going through each day with a vision for the smile of God. That's addressing the issue of my ultimate audience. Secondly, I'm going through each day with a hunger for the Word of God. This is addressing that question, what's my ultimate truth? What's a true source? What defines reality for me? Go back to the text, verse 51. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Look at the correlation there. Correlation between my word, abiding by, living by, obeying. Don't think of just legalistic checklists. Think of this is what's setting the cadence of my life. The word. And it's that that enables me to not taste death. Now, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 tells us. So even for a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm secure in him, headed for heaven, assurance of salvation. But if I sin, there's still going to be a consequence a, that's tainted with the smell of death. And Jesus is saying, it's my word. My truth is gonna set you free. To live connected with him, it's not just change, doesn't change just my Sunday morning schedule, it changes my Monday afternoon and Thursday evening and Wednesday midday, where I'm living according to his word. Proverbs 16, verse 25, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. We make the assumption and draw a wrong conclusion. Boy, that looks like a good path. I think I'll do that. I think I'll think that. But in the end, it's gonna lead me to death. And Jesus says, keep my word and you won't taste death. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34 says, they the words of the law. We looked at this last week are not just idle words for you. They are your life. This is not just a, a decoration for my nightstand or the uh, coffee table. It's a, it's a lamp for my path. It's a truth source for the way I do business and do relationships and do laughter and do grieving. It's life. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. How do we live? We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How do I treat the word? I've got a friend who uh, in his first graduate, he was, it was a Bible college seminary type institution, their first class of the year. So these are all college age and above. 
They're sitting in a seminar room. They all have their Bibles open because that's what it was. They were going to be going through some introductory Bible stuff. And so the professor came around, had them all open up to a particular passage of Scripture. And then he walked around the seminar room with squares of wax paper. With each student, he put a sheet of wax paper right on their Bible. And then he got a little honey bear out from, uh, from his desk, pulled it out from his briefcase, and he walked around to each of these students, and on top of that wax paper, squeezed a little dollop of honey. And then he said, I want you to take your Bibles, these grown men and women, and he says, and I want you to taste how sweet it is. Here's the passage that he had opened up. It's a Psalm, it was a Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Am I reading God's word as a duty or am I reading it because it's sweetness there? It's sweetness to hear about the path of life and to be enlightened regarding the truth about the path of death. John 20, 31, you've heard me read it many times. I want you to pay attention to a different word, but these are written, 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 these are recorded, inspired by God, written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, yes, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So what does it look like for me to be connected to God by Jesus and to walk this journey of life together with him? A life-giving journey is characterized first by a vision for the smile of God. I'm living before an audience of one. Second, it's characterized by a hunger for the word of God. Not just getting religious facts, but words to live by. It's my ultimate truth source. Third, it means that I'm walking through my journey with a passion for the glory of God. And that addresses this whole notion of where's my ultimate significance come from? Where's yours? Now again, we all, whether you've ever articulated or not, we demonstrate every one of these, audience, truth source, significance by our behavior, by our thoughts. What Jesus says, let me explain something to you. I've got a restorative agenda. It's not a religious agenda. There's redemption and that redemption is leading to a restoration. What this connection means is he leads me in a restorative way back into the original purpose that I was made for. And what was I originally made for? His glory. Glory is a word that we throw around in church circles and we use it on Sundays, but never the rest of the week. There is no word that belongs more in the rest of the week. It's referring to the kabod is the Hebrew word, the weightiness of God, the significance of his self-existence, his beauty, his sufficiency, his enoughness. And all of creation, is to reflect his glory. And what Jesus models as a fully human, but also fully God, man walking on this planet, he demonstrates in verse 50, he says, I am not seeking glory for myself. John 17, three, you know that verse, he says, but this is eternal life, that they may know you. So eternal life is not a place, it's intimacy with him, and it'll be undiluted intimacy in heaven, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. But look at verse four. I brought you glory. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus was the epitome of the glory of God. There's a survey done two years ago. 19 to 24 year olds, a nationwide survey in America about adulthood and ultimate purpose. And the conclusion that they made, these kids said, you know what, to be a real adult, you gotta know your purpose. What was shocking a little bit is that only 30% of those students of those 19 to 24 year olds had any semblance of what the purpose of their lives were. Most of us have never thought, thought about, okay, why am I here? But that why am I here is intimately, direct, intimately connected with that sense of significance. And I can try to gain significance with power plays and with, with uh, uh, possessions and, and with pleasure binges. But the significance comes from the smile, from the truth, from being restored to doing my life according to the glory of God. There's a poet back in the World War I, Robert Abrahams, who said, Most men, some men die by shrapnel. 
And some go down in flames, but most men perish inch by inch and play at little games. Trivial pursuits. Why are you on this planet? To get that amount in your bank account, really? To get that title at the office, really? To get that degree at school, really? To get that vacation in that place? To get that home, that vacation home? To get that size boat? To get that fun fix? Are you kidding me? Most men perish little by little at play at little games. The power of Christ's restorative agenda is not bringing us back into a new habit on a Sunday morning, but restoring us to that ultimate purpose, leading us along a path of significance in which we were eating and drinking and doing our lives to the glory of God. Here's the progression. You guys know the passage in Habakkuk 2 that I love talking about the Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14, talking about the agenda that God's about is that the earth will once again be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In creation, before the fall, everything glorified him. You've heard me talk about this. Put it in the context of, of, of Jesus saying, don't have the wrong assumption, or wrong assumption about who I am. Everything that existed glorify him. The fall occurred. There was stuff that didn't glorify him. And God said, I will not be deterred. I will glorify myself, myself by redeeming and restoring all creation to the point that one day all the earth once again be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I can, being led and connected by God, wake up on a Monday morning realizing today can be a day of significance in which I take a little step or a giant leap or I observe that the glory of God is once again because of the work of Christ taking over. The heavens declare the glory of God, but our problem is our sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God. Let's go through just several rapid fire and we're gonna finish up here. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A lot of us interpret that in a moralistic sense only, thinking, oh yeah, we've sinned. And what that means is we fall and short of the glory of God, his standard. It's not all that's saying. His this is speaking of the tragedy of our sin, that we fall short of experiencing the sweetness and the beauty and the intricacy of God's glory, of tasting his glory in our relationships and our vocations, of tasting his glory in our play. But God had an agenda after our sin. Ezekiel 39, 21, I will display my glory among the nations. And principle in that restoration is you and me. Isaiah 43, verse six, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by name. You sons, you daughters, this is referring to you. You've been called by his name, he says, whom I created, not for their own little playful agendas where they'll die inch by inch. I've created you for my glory. I formed you, I made you, and the essence of significance and fulfillment is doing what I was originally made for. And it's something in which I find great significance. Most of us think significance, the answer to our significance quest is becoming the star of our story. Significance comes from realizing I'm not the star of my own story, he is. And what that does is it elevates. It doesn't diminish me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You see that in the face of Christ. The beauty of coming to Jesus and being connected with him is I can wake up in the morning and I've got eyes, eyeglasses, I've got lenses, filters through which I see something that an unbeliever does not see. I can see glimpses of his glory. I can see the glory of God in the face of Christ being unpacked, Ephesians chapter one says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, so whether you eat or you drink or you work or you play or you relate or you're quiet, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, reflecting the weight of his worth, reflecting the beauty, beauty of his significance. It's why Justin, wherever he might be in a performance, it, it doesn't have to be in a church service. He's glorifying God, he's doing what he's wired to do, and the same is true for you, and for you, and for me, in our relationships, with a, vi a vision for his smile, with a hunger for his word, 
for a passion for his glory. Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest minds that American philosophy has ever produced. He said this, he said, when he was a young man, he made 70 resolutions and number one was resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration on this planet. Notice he connected his good and profit and pleasure with the glory of God. He said, they, they, they go together. If I'm really glorifying God, it will be to my pleasure. So I want, to, I want you to look at Psalm 34. There's an, there's an invitation that comes in Psalm 34. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I want you to read that right now. I want you to read it out loud, and I want you to say it to the people around you. This is a proclamation of saying, I want you to experience significance like you never could experience it. Let's hear it. And that was awesome for a warm-up. Ready? Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You know what that is? That's a statement of saying, let's pursue significance together. It's not let's, let's do religion together. Let's pursue significance together. I was speaking up in Washington, D.C. Uh, a couple of years ago and to some Christian law students. I took one afternoon off, wasn't speaking, went to the tomb of the unknown soldier. Since 1937, it has always been guarded, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 24-hour shifts. Back in 2003, I was reading, Hurricane Isabel came through up the East Coast, and for the first time since 1937, the soldiers were given permission to abandon their post, and, one of the, they, and they didn't. And one of the Marines said in an interview afterward, they told us that and we looked at one another and said, not gonna happen. 70 trees went down, big oak trees, 70 mile an hour winds, and they stood their post. In the name of Jesus, as a fellow human being, I'm asking you, I'm, 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 I'm exhorting you, I'm inviting you. Let's pray for one another regardless of whatever hurricanes of the heart, hurricanes of our health, whatever hurricanes of our circumstances come along. Let's glorify the Lord together and exalt his name together. Let's exhort one another in a life-giving way to live our lives with a view for the smile of God, live our lives with a hunger for the word of God, and live our lives with a passion for reflecting the glory of God in all that we do. Amen. Let's stand together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the, the beauty of the gospel, that it's life-giving. Forgive us for turning it into rote religiosity. Thank you for connecting us to the Father, connecting us to life. Now, right now, as we make this proclamation of a song Many of us have never heard before. It's the first time I know that we've done it here at Northland. May it be our prayer that we might magnify you along with all creation and as a result be fish in water doing what we were made to do. And I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth but also life. Amen and amen.